0: Hey, everybody, good morning. morning. Welcome to worship today. My name is Tim, if we've never met before, and I'm one of the pastors here. Today, we're continuing our uh, walk through the New Testament letter of Hebrews, and we're going to be talking today about uh, worship acceptable worship and what that means. We're going to be reflecting a little bit on what it is we're doing when we get together like this uh, every Sunday morning and what we're doing when we go to prayer uh, at home, alone, and things like that. To do that, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 12 together. So why don't you turn there with me. That'll be on page 1009 if you want to borrow a Bible from under the chairs in front of you. Hebrews chapter 12. And of course, it'll be on the screens this morning too. While you're finding it, just in case this is your first time with us today, welcome to you, especially. We just want to let you know a few things. Hebrews is a letter that was written to some Jewish Christians in the uh, middle of the first century who were thinking about returning to Judaism, uh, returning to the Old Covenant and the Law of Moses because uh, the cost of following Jesus was rising. They thought that would bring some relief. And because, and this is still common today, because... They were struggling with the nearly complete lack of external, visible, tangible aspects of Christianity. Uh, Christianity has no visible temple, no physical sacrifices, no priest that can be touched and heard. So a lot of what makes religion a comfort to the worshiper is missing in Christianity. We can't see the blood of Jesus. We can't hear his intercession for us and there isn't like a designated place where all Christians need to come and worship and things like that. So we tend to wrestle as followers of Jesus and I would say all modern people probably wrestle with this question. Well, are spiritual things really real then? Uh, What is going on beyond what I can see? And what's happening there? Like when we go to pray, when we gather to worship, what is happening spiritually? And Hebrews is a great gift because it comes alongside and it takes us kind of through that veil, so to speak, to help us understand what is happening in the world that we cannot see with our physical eyes. In the Gospel of John, for example, Jesus says to a Samaritan woman, believe me, a time is coming and is now here When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Maybe you've heard that before. In spirit and in truth. Okay, that's great. But what exactly does that mean? And what has changed now, you know, that Jesus has come? What's changed about our worship? And over and over again, the message of Hebrews is, first of all, that it's going to show us a little bit of that. And secondly, if you could just see if you could just understand what's happened in Jesus, you would never be tempted again to return to any this-worldly, tangible, physical, human religion or philosophy. So if you have Hebrews chapter 12 in front of you right now, just a, a, a quick context piece, so we're continuing a conversation we began two weeks ago. At the end of our reading last time, the author pointed to a character named Esau. This is verses 16 and 17. He pointed to a character named Esau and said, this is someone who embodies the foolishness and the short-sightedness of a person who can't see the spiritual world. Uh, Esau was a firstborn son. He was in line to inherit this massive family fortune as well, as all the spiritual benefits of belonging to that family, and he had he had to do nothing. All he had to do was receive it. And he just didn't care. He it wasn't that you know he it wasn't that he didn't like God, he just was bored with God. He found it uninteresting. And he was so short sighted that Esau sold his birthright as the firstborn for a bowl of soup. And Hebrews is saying, this is what we do when we don't understand what's really going on and we trade away what God has done in Jesus for anything else. And the question then is, well, what is this birthright that we've come into? So we're gonna pick up in chapter 12, verse 18, and here's our reading today. He writes, for you have not come to what may be touched, For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more and I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and thus let us offer to god acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our god is a consuming fire this is the word of the lord thanks be to god all right if you look at verses 18 through 21 and you're unfamiliar with this he's just recounting for us the events of Exodus chapter 19. You can jot that in the margin of your Bible. Exodus chapter 19 describes the day that God came to Mount Sinai to meet with Israel. Maybe you've seen the Charlton Heston movie that they show every year around Easter. It's there on this mountain, Mount Sinai, that God and Israel entered into this old covenant that the people of Hebrews are thinking about returning to. And it looked and felt just like Hebrews describes it here. There was blazing fire, smoke that blotted out the sky, this deafening sound that shook the body and shook the ears. Exodus says that the mountain itself trembled under the weight of God's presence, and this order was given, don't come near the mountain. Don't even touch it. You you could sooner draw near to the sun than draw near to God's presence and live. And you can see there in verse 21, it says, even Moses trembled with fear. Okay, what a contrast to everything that we've been reading in the book of Hebrews so far, where the message is over and over again, what? Draw near. Draw near to God. Come into God's presence with confidence and full assurance of faith. What a different message. And of course it begs the question, what has changed? Let's have audience participation time now. Has God changed? No. No. Goodness, no. God has not changed. Nothing in His holiness has diminished. Verse 29 reminds us Our God is still a consuming fire. So it's nothing about God that's diminished, it's the blood of Jesus that has changed everything. Mount Sinai was an awesome, earthly, visible, touchable mountain. This other world, you know, this physical display of God's power and glory and the the old covenant that these people are thinking about returning to was awesome. I mean, it was a gift from God and it was also unbearable. So just just like the physical experience at Mount Sinai was completely overwhelming to them, our souls cannot bear that old covenant either. The weight of, of the law and the condemnation of the law and this need to offer sacrifices again and again. Who can stand this? Who could keep that up? And once again, Hebrews is saying to us, if you could just see clearly what God has done in Jesus, you wouldn't even be tempted to go back to that. And so this is what he says we have come to. We've not come to this mountain that can be touched. But in verse 22, he says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. This is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. Mount Zion is a very, very old name for a particular mountain in the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem has a bunch of mountains in it, but this particular mountain is the place where the Ark of the Covenant was kept during the time of Israel's kings and then uh, Israel built its temple on this mountain. So, God is omnipresent and he does not dwell in buildings made by hands, even the Old Testament uh, people understood that, but Mount Zion was a place where God promised to meet with his people in a unique way. Okay, Uh, it, it, it was a place of cosmic significance where the world we cannot see and the world that we do see came together, where what is uh, spiritual overlapped with what is earthly and physical. So Mount Zion became a, you know, a metaphor or a symbol of this overlap of the, of the worlds, of these realities. And the author's just saying This is what you have come to. This is what you've entered into. It's saying because of our spiritual union with Jesus, we participate as truly in that world that we cannot see as we participate in this world. We live as truly in that reality as we do in this reality. And that is, it's an incredible thought. Okay, so uh, Revelation chapter 14 uh, gives us another peek into what's happening on the other side of this veil. And it it says, uh, then I looked, and behold, Mount Zion, and standing there is the Lamb, Jesus. And gathered around the Lamb are all all of these people. And there's this deafening roar. And there's it sounds like thunder and it sounds like waterfalls. In other words, just like Sinai, Mount Zion is overwhelming as well. And yet, the people stand. The people in Mount Zion can stand in God's presence. And not only that, it says, Revelation chapter 14 and they were singing a new song. In other words, not only can they stand in God's presence, but they are adding to this deafening cacophony of sound with their own voices. And that's what we've come to. It does not say, please notice verse 22, it does not say, this is what you come to when you die. It says, this is what you have come to now. That right now, because of the blood of Jesus and because of your spiritual union with Christ, you are participating in a world you cannot see. In the same way that you participate in this one. That means that when you go to prayer today, this is why you don't have to shout. (laughs) Okay, This is why you don't have to scream in your prayer to be heard. Because Scripture teaches you are as present in that reality as you are in this one. You just can't see it. This is what Jesus meant when he talked about worshiping in the spirit and in the truth that we are sharing in in a world we cannot yet see. Now I have, as many of you know, uh, a remarkable superpower, and that is to read your minds as I teach. This just a <laughs> gift. I can't explain it, but I know what you're thinking. And you're sitting there and you're thinking, okay, so is Prince saying right now that when Mark Meyer gets up in front of the congregation and calls us to worship and strikes up the band, That heaven opens and descends in this room, and we're joining with this heavenly and earthly choir and things like that. I think what I am trying to say, I think what scripture teaches, uh, is something like that, but actually what it's saying is that because of our union with Christ, neither Mark, nor myself, nor you ever left. Does that make sense? No, that's fine. <laughs> I'm, I'm saying, thank you for being honest. <laughs> I'm, saying, I'm saying, that's so good not to lie in church, right? I'm saying that throughout your day, because you belong to Christ, because you've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, you are always participating in that reality. Thank you. (laughs) And that's why when you go to pray, you don't have to sit and wait, you know, for that quiver in the liver, that feeling, that sense that I'm being heard and I'm actually entering. You don't have to wait for that because what Scripture teaches is in Christ, you never really leave. What happens when we're together Is something unique though. Okay, so I was talking with a a self described music nerd this week, and you know, he was just pointing out a soloist is an amazingly beautiful thing, okay? But a choir is an otherworldly experience. Uh, A single string is not to be despised, it's awesome. You at home alone in your closet, at your prayer, is an amazing gift. But an orchestra is of another order. (laughs) It's just something completely different. And so what we do when we gather and when we're alone are we make these invisible realities just a little visible. That's actually, that's our vocation as Christians. Part of the reason we exist is to make visible in this world just a little bit what none of us can actually see with our physical eyes yet. He goes on to say in verse 22, you've come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly, Jer- I, I added the word and that price, sorry. The, the, to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. It's just a reminder that we're worshipers, we're also citizens of a spiritual city. The city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. This is a theme woven throughout scriptures. This resonates with me personally very much. For everyone longing for a better world. Hebrews, chapter. if you have your Bible open right now, you can see Hebrews chapter 11. This is the other page. 11.10 talks about Abraham and saying, you know, when Abraham said yes to God, he lost his home, he lost his country, he lost his place in the world. But, quote, he was looking for a city whose designer and builder was God. Verse 14, people who speak this way make it clear they're seeking a homeland. They desire a better country that is a heavenly one and therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a city. So Mount Zion is a reminder that we're part of this incredible worshiping assembly but we're also citizens of a spiritual city. Pilgrims from another country and again because of our union with Christ, we're already enjoying all of the rights and privileges that any citizen of a great city would enjoy. The things that we, th- This means that whether you can see it or not, you know, the things that you pray for matter because your voice is heard in that assembly. The things you're giving your life to matter. The things you do in this tangible physical world matter in that one. It isn't just a worshiping assembly, but we've been caught up in the authority of a spiritual kingdom. And you, once you see that in the New Testament, you can never unsee it. I mean, you look at the way that Jesus was training his disciples. What is he training his disciples to do if not to handle the authority of this other reality? to bring that reality into the world that we can see. When we pray together, your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth, okay, in this reality as it is in heaven, what are we asking except that God would kind of bring through that unseen reality and to make it more present here in some way, in some tangible way. What do we do in communion except to make the death and resurrection just a little visible, a little tangible to our hearts and to our minds? Paul, the way, I think the way Paul expresses it in the New Testament is in sharing the Lord's Supper. We declare the death of the Lord Jesus until he returns. To belong to Jesus is to belong to a world we cannot see as truly as we belong to this one. And, and part of why this matters is that I think this is just everywhere in the New Testament. God has ordained that there are certain things he will not do in this world until his people act like citizens of that one. Does that make sense? So- I'm not gonna ask if that makes <laughs> sense. Does that make sense? <laughs> Anybody? I, I'm saying <laughs> God has ordained that until we uh, act, meaning I'm thinking of prayer especially, until we pray and act like citizens with kingdom authority there, he, there are things he just won't do here. And that's why it matters so much. I'm not going to ask if you get that. Just do it, okay? Okay. <laughs> So this is, the, this is the place that we've come to. Now he describes the people that we've become a part of. He says, again, verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect. When Jesus says in Matthew 16:18 that I will build my church I will build my assembly and the gates of hell will not prevail against it this is what he's talking about right here and I think that the author of Hebrews points to three different groups uh, first he talks about innumerable angels in festal gathering again anytime in scripture we're allowed a glimpse into heaven it is filled with these spiritual creatures named angels warriors of light who come and go at god's command and minister to the visible church and accomplish god's will in the world and here we see uh, that they're co-worshippers with us it says they're they're assembled in festal gathering meaning they've come to party This is another thing that we see every time we get a glimpse into heaven is that it's a place of nothing but joy. C.S. Lewis said joy is the serious business of heaven. This is all we do is we rejoice, we worship. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a feast. It's like a great party, a wedding celebration. That's what you've come to. Then he mentions the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. The firstborn... Just, to remi- it's just He's just piling up the metaphors. Firstborn is a reminder that these are the people who will inherit everything one day. These are the people who have endured suffering as preparation for something greater. These are people, unlike Esau, unlike Esau who just didn't think much about it. He's like, I don't really care. I'll, I'd rather have a bowl of soup. These are the people who value and hold fast to the Lord Jesus. And it says that they are enrolled in heaven. This is another common theme in scripture. Jesus said to his disciples, Luke chapter 10, don't rejoice. Don't don't get too excited about this authority that I'm giving you here. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In the book of Revelation, we, we see a repeated reference to the Lamb's book of life. Guys, it's just, a remember that, it's just a reminder that Jesus did not shed his blood for a random group of strangers. This assembly in heaven is not just a smattering of nameless, faceless, whoever's. I believe things like this remind us that, that your name is known, it is written down, and Jesus shed his blood for you. For you. Finally, he mentions the spirits of the righteous made perfect. I'll just disclaimer, there are a couple of different ways to understand this phrase. For the sake of time, I'm just going to share with you my best understanding of what the author is teaching here. When I hear the spirits of the righteous, immediately I think of people like Noah, Abraham, and Job. So these are people who are said to be righteous in scripture and yet there is no way that they could have known the name of Jesus or about his atoning sacrifice or about his resurrection. There's no way that they could have understood those things and yet they're called righteous because they meet the criteria of faith meaning they believed what God did say to them, and God credited to them as righteousness. When it says they've been made perfect, I think he's saying these are people whose faith is perfect now. Their information is complete. They understand what God has done for them and they've entered into that. And so ultimately from from Adam and Eve to the end of the age, there is just ultimately one church, one assembly, gathered in heaven and on earth. Most of them are in heaven. Some of us are on earth, but there's only one. And that is what you have entered into, whether you can see it or not. And that is, that is at the, what makes all of this possible, verse 24 reminds us, is the blood of Jesus that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel is the first human being killed in Scripture. And his blood brought a curse on his brother. It cries out from the ground for vengeance. The blood of Jesus poured out for you by name. says, come, draw near. And the great challenge of Hebrews and everything we've said you cannot see anything I've just said for the last 15 minutes. You can't see anything that we've talked about and the question is, what will you do? What are you gonna do with this? Because faith, this is how we've been defining faith, faith is a decision that I will respond to what God has said. Faith is a decision to hear the word of God. And so you have two choices, maybe three. One, you've got to ask yourself, is Prince teaching this the right way? Okay? There's an outside chance. Let's say less than 3% chance. I'm totally wrong. Okay? <laughs> maybe I've just completely misunderstood the scripture. Okay, you've got to answer that question first. Is, is this what Hebrews teaches? But the second is, if this is it, If you really do participate in a world you cannot see, as truly as you are participating in this one, what are you going to do with that? (laughs) There are at least three things. Number one, it may turn into four. Number one, we're not to respond like Esau. So if you look at verse 25 and 26, we won't spend a lot of time here just because of time, but He says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if Israel did not escape when they refused Moses who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject the Lord Jesus who warns us from heaven? And then he gives this warning. At Mount Sinai, God's voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, this is verse 26, now he's promised yet once more I'll shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And this is a, he's quoting uh, the prophet Haggai here, but it's taught all over scripture that the clock is ticking. And the resurrection of Jesus is the beginning of the end. The sand is running out of the hourglass. Time is running out for the, the Esau spirit to hear and understand and to turn to Jesus. So that, that's, that's the first thing. Please don't respond like Esau. The second, though, he says is, verse 28, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Uh, so we're Christians, and that means that we're not to bring any kind of physical, tangible blood sacrifice or anything. That would demean what Jesus has done. However, you should know All throughout the New Testament, we are told to bring a sacrifice and an offering of praise and thanksgiving. There are some instructions about how we're to gather, okay? And one of them is that when you come, be ready to give thanks. Give thanks for a kingdom that cannot be shaken. But finally, and here's where we'll kind of end our time. It says that we are to offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire still. As we just talk about this, I wanna invite the ushers to just go ahead and prepare to share communion right now. One of the greatest gifts of Christianity is because we have no temples, no priests, no sacrifices and so on, because scripture contains virtually no instruction at all regarding external things in our worship, it has allowed the gospel to take root in virtually every culture on the planet. This morning in every corner of the globe, Christians are lifting up the name of Jesus in a thousand languages, every imaginable building and non-building you can think of, dressed in all different kinds of way, and that is a tremendous gift. The challenge of Christian worship then is that we, we can make the mistake of thinking that this lack of external commands means we're free to do whatever we see fit. And that is not true either. Verse 28 reminds us that there is a thing called unacceptable worship. Well, this is a great, just for illustration, this is a great oversimplification. Okay, so don't anybody get mad at me. But uh, in in high church worship settings, for example, so by high church, I'm thinking of Anglican, Catholic, Orthodox, and, and uh, things like that. In high church worship, there's a great deal of external symbolism in those worship gatherings. They walk in with the Bible over their heads. They wear robes and vestments. Their ministers are called priests. Every part of the worship gathering is full of this meaningful symbolism. Even their buildings, you know, point you to the grandeur and the awe of God's presence. At its very best, those worship gatherings communicate an appropriate sense of reverence and awe of God. At their worst, they can be an attempt to reproduce physical external aspects of the law that Jesus has actually laid aside. It can create an unnecessary gap between the worshiper and between God, and it can encourage sometimes the worshiper to trust in those external things rather than just the blood of Jesus. Now, in low church worship gatherings, and that is what you're in today, welcome. (laughs) Okay? In low church worship gatherings, it's common to have this kind of come as you are vibe. Okay, we dress casually, we show up late, there's no water to wash. Is anyone feeling guilty already? <laughs> There's no water to wash with. You don't kneel before you enter the room. Uh, our architecture is, is attractive, but not, whatever you know, cool. I don't know if that's a better word. Uh, our, our, you know, it, it is what it is. Uh, I'm not in a robe, praise God, and I don't have a pointy hat, and our Bibles are under the chairs in front of you, and you, we encourage you to write on them. You know, I, at its best... There there are central core theological convictions beneath those things. What, What we're trying to communicate is that there is no external thing you can do to make yourself fit to be here. Okay, there is nothing you bring to the table except the sin from which you need to be saved today. And everything about gathering with this congregation in heaven and on earth depends on the blood of Jesus. At its worst... This come-as-you-are casualness can easily, easily, easily become an internal carelessness. At its worst, what what this encourages is to come to worship with little or no thought about what we're doing. Uh, It encourages us to sit passively, to sip our lattes, and to evaluate what's happening like a consumer. At worst, it creates this carelessness that requires no preparation of your heart or mind, and low thoughts of God. We, we, you know, we do the things we do because it's just God. You know. And that we cannot do. That we cannot do. We are to offer acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is still a consuming fire now, what I'm going to do while we, while we prepare for communion, I'm going to have the ushers come forward and they're going to begin serving the, the first element of communion, which is bread. And I want you to just sit with it while I finish this last point. Okay, so just hold it and then we're going to share communion together. I just want to talk then about how the gospel helps us, whether we're in high church or low church settings, how does the gospel help the worshiper to come acceptably? Number one, the gospel reminds us, communion reminds us that there is nothing you can do to make yourself worthy to be here. Nothing in my hands I bring only to the cross I cling. It is the blood of Jesus and nothing else that allows you to stand in the assembly of the firstborn and in the presence of innumerable angels and the spirits of the righteous made perfect. There's nothing you could wear there's no religious service you could perform that would make you worthy to be here. So, when you're in the congregation and you are distracted, as I am sometimes, when you're late because you just had a hard time getting out the door, you say, God, thank you for the blood of Jesus. When your mind wanders, you say, God, my, I, just, my head is not here. I'm struggling to be here. Would you help me by your grace? But I thank you that nothing depends on me today. And when you come burdened with a weight of guilt from a lousy Saturday night or a week full of fighting with your spouse or something like that, you do not withdraw from worship and say, I'm going to go home and I'm going to put together a better week and I'll be back. I'll, I'll draw near next week. That's a denial of the gospel. You come as you are, trusting in the blood of Jesus alone. The second thing that the gospel does is to remind us of what we're doing here. The gospel reminds us of the beauty of Christ. It It reminds us as awesome as Mount Sinai was, as awesome as the temple was, and as beautiful as the priests were, and as meaningful as those sacrifices were, Jesus is just greater. There's just nothing like him in all of the universe. He is eternal, permanent, effective, the son of God, the son of man, the redeemer of the world. His sacrifice is ratified by the power of an indestructible right. So if Israel trembled at Mount Sinai with fear, how much more should we be in awe at Mount Zion where we are gathered at this moment with a host that we cannot see? at the root of Christian weakness in prayer, at the root of boredom in worship, is a terrible misunderstanding about what is happening here and about what it is you have come to. You have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God. To innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the church of the firstborn whose names are enrolled in heaven, and to God the Judge of all, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and there is no reason you can stand but the things you're holding in your hand and what they symbolize. So I'm going to give you just a minute on your own right now before we share the bread. I want you to give thanks. That you've been brought into a kingdom that cannot be shaken. To give thanks for the blood of Jesus. And just remember where you are right now. Just a minute on your own. Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you. Do this and remember me. The ushers are going to bring forward the the juice and we're going to sing together while that's happening you can just remain seated. We'll, I'll come back up we'll share the cup uh, all at the same time in just a moment
1: how quickly we forget the God
0: into my blood. Do this as often as you drink it and remember me. Alright, let's stand together and continue singing.